0: You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner.
1: In the Bible, the indwelling of this building is a kind of good in and of itself. And coming to the building, coming to the city of Jerusalem uh, to take in visually Mm -hmm. Uh, the building um, Mm -hmm. and even the buildings around the building is uh, conceived to be you know a uh, extraordinary uh, spiritual act of obedience Uh, its modern counterpart would be you know modern Jews to this day who come to the western wall in Jerusalem uh, that the reason why the western wall has that kind of significance is because of its association with the temple we can no longer see the temple but we can see Uh, Some of the stonework uh, that participated Mm -hmm. in the glory of God uh, that Mm -hmm. resided within the temple. And I think that um, that sort of religious practice is deeply biblical and it's Mm -hmm. deeply part of the tabernacle narrative and often, I think, ignored uh, by modern readers. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to the
0: podcast. We've got another excellent episode for you today. My guest is Dr. Gary Anderson. He is Hesburgh Professor of Catholic Theology at the University of Notre Dame. And uh, he is a renowned uh, Old Testament scholar, um, but he's also really well known not only for Yeah, being an incredible Old Testament scholar, but being able to bridge the divide that often exists between uh, biblical and theological studies. He does a lot of really wonderful work with the biblical text in uh, reception history, both in Jewish and Christian reception history. And uh, I've really just appreciated his scholarship for a long time. Some of the other books that he's written, in addition to the one we're going to be talking about today, some award winners, Sin, A History, highly recommend, as well as Charity, the Place of Poor in Biblical Tradition. Uh, The book that we're discussing today, surprise, surprise, for those of you who know me, uh, you'd know that I would be interested in this. The title is That I May Dwell Among Them, Incarnation and Atonement, in the tabernacle narrative. Uh, This is obviously a huge interest of mine and you can pick up on that if you've been watching the channel discussions of priesthood and sacrifice and atonement and how that factors into Christian theology. This is just a really rich discussion. I know you're going to love it and uh, you're here learning uh, from one of the masters. So enjoy. Before we dive in though to our conversation, uh, let me just give a quick reminder for those who have been watching us for some time and are enjoying what we're doing. uh, Please do consider becoming a member of the Center for Bible Study. All you need to do if you want to become a member is make a monthly, recurring monthly donation of any dollar amount. These are tax-deductible donations. You can use the link in the description or at the front of the YouTube page. The, this uh, becoming a member gives you access to all of our past Center for Bible Study classes, entrance into all of our future classes. We've got a class on biblical interpretation coming up in January, um, so it's a really great opportunity to get invest in your ongoing. Um, education and support the work that we're doing, both in classes and in online spaces like this. So please do consider becoming a member. And as always, please make sure that you are subscribed uh, to the YouTube channel or that you're following us uh, if you're listening to us through uh, one of the podcast media. And uh, with that, uh, let's go ahead and jump into our conversation with Dr. Anderson. Welcome, everybody. I am so, so delighted today to have on Dr. Gary Anderson. Uh, to talk about his new book, That I May Dwell Among Them, Incarnation and Atonement in the Tabernacle Narrative. I've personally been a fan of Dr. Anderson's work for a long time. In fact, we met once. He probably doesn't remember it, but I do. Um, I was his, my second year of study at the University of St. Andrews, and you actually had come out to give a paper on uh, the strange fire on uh, a text at St. Andrews, and I think it was my second year there. I happened to bring my copy of uh, Genesis of Perfection with me overseas because I really loved that book, and I had uh, you sign it for me. So <laughs> I don't know if you remember that at all. Probably not, but um, that was a, a memorable moment for me, at least, getting to meet somebody uh, that I really, I really respected your your work, and um, really thrilled to have you on. So thanks, Gary, for being on the show.
1: Thank you. Those. Thank you for those very kind words. I. I apologize. I, I do remember going to St. Andrews. I remember the lecture, but I don't remember you personally. So I, That
0: is okay. Yeah, that is okay. It was a very quick interaction, but um, yeah, grateful for you. Um, so before we dive into the book, would you be willing to share just a little bit about your your path into biblical studies and um, what what's motivated you to do the work that you've done over the course of your really long and productive career?
1: Yeah, I, I was raised... Um, United Methodist, and I actually went to a Methodist college as an undergraduate. And just by chance, really, my fall semester of my first year, I took an introduction to the Old Testament class. The textbook I can still remember was uh, Bernard Anderson from mm-hmm. um, Princeton Theological Seminary. That was a true bestseller that went through multiple editions. Many people took their uh, intro course with the guidance of uh, Bernard Anderson. And I guess what struck me I was always I was certainly a practicing christian a serious christian however whatever adjective you prefer to use but hadn't thought i suppose a lot about the relationship uh of the bible to the culture in which it was created uh to the reality realia you know it presumed and that course was just like a revelation to me that the bible actually referred to real things in history that you could uh, through historical method, you know, interrogate and um, get a much deeper sense of what the biblical writers were about. So uh, I was hooked from the very first class. I don't think hmm. I ever imagined I would be going on for a PhD in that subject, but I just kept slowly wading further into the waters. My teacher informed me that if you wanted to know the Bible better, you would need to begin to learn the languages of which the Bible was written. Um, and it was really just one step after another. And before you knew it, uh, I was in the deep end swimming and, um, enjoying myself. Not sure how I got there. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I hear that story quite often. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and as you went on in your career, were there anything, any things, that shaped in particular, the kind of scholarship that you felt,
1: felt drawn to, um, yeah, I would say so a h- huge factor and. you know, it's very difficult for me to remember how it began. Um, I must say, maybe as a kind of parenthetical remark, you know, I've always been suspicious of the historical certainty of many historical Jesus scholars about, you know, Jesus' own uh, mental state, about was he the Messiah, was he God, etc., etc. Because I think, you know, just with respect to my own life, when I think back over you know, the decades now that I've lived, what led to this decision or that decision. It's very hard to get back into the space uh, mm. of those decisions because so much has happened in between. It's hard to know what came first, what came uh, later. But um, so I can't give you you know a narrative of explicit historical origination. But at some point in my career, I became very interested in um, Judaism, and uh, Jewish readings, especially of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And um, that interest was never at the expense or cost of my uh, interest in Christian readings. In fact, the two were always side by side. I was interested in uh, how two faith communities could read the same book um, and frequently come to the same conclusions, but often with you know, strikingly different emphases. Uh, that was a huge, it remains a huge influence on me. I think in some instances or in some senses, we might want to say it was formative in my leaving my Protestant upbringing and becoming Catholic because hmm. uh, I guess what really shaped my imagination then and continues now is the way in which church and synagogue shape uh, the character of the Bible, the, the notion of sola scriptura, which I don't reject. I think there is something about Scripture's plain sense that remains important and authoritative for me, but it just doesn't have the gravity it used to have. I, I see synagogue and church as uh, very important constitutive players, we might want to say, in defining what Scripture is and mm-hmm. how it ought to be read. And that's been a constant through my career. So my interest mm-hmm. in Judaism is not just a, you know, interest in religious pluralism or philo I mean, it is all of that, of course, to a degree, uh, but it's also very existential. It's very mm-hmm. theological. You know, what, what, how does this text look um, through the eyes of a tradition, you know, other than mine? And mm-hmm. I've always, you know, made that a huge point of my scholarship.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, that definitely comes through. Yeah, really great to hear you sh- share about that. Um, so this is another work um, that does a very kind of robust biblical theology, not to the detriment of certainly of historical critical scholarship, but uh, uses that as one resource for kind of thinking about the canonical shape of uh, Of the Torah and the theology that it 's telling, and what it looks like to be a Christian reader uh, have two Testaments and how they speak to one another and so you really highlight kind of the the dialogical nature of a biblical theology that the New Testament writes doesn 't just shed light on the Old Testament but that the Old Testament has to have its own distinct voice and continue on to contribute um, to our understanding of the of the Christ event. So I'd love if you could just kind of set out that approach a little bit for us, because I think many Christian readers in particular, when they come to thinking about the way the Old Testament speaks to the New Testament, they just think, oh, how has the New Testament picked up parts of the Old Testament? And then kind of we've moved on in the conversation. Uh, But what you show is throughout the early tradition, you have people that are thinking theologically about Jesus in light of the Old Testament in ways that we don't see explicitly done in any uh, New Testament book, maybe?
1: That, that's a great question. Um, and here I would have to say, though I mentioned, I uh, of course, my career became Roman Catholic. I never really lost my interest and, in, let's say, you know, um, affection for Protestantism. Um, Brevard Childs, and mm-hmm. you might want to say the Yale School was deeply and remains deeply influential Uh, on the way in which I approach the relationship of the Testaments. Um, Actually, what's curious to me, I suppose I'd love to do the intellectual historical work here. I've not done it. Um, But this, you know, value placed on the Old Testament and the way in which it can provide a kind of ballast. I'm not going to use corrective. That's not the sense. But an independent voice or a voice... Filling lacuna that the New Hmm. Testament doesn't have, that might be the good way to put it, uh, is nicely illustrated actually in the Reformed tradition. I read an extraordinary book by Eric Nelson called The Hebrew Republic, in which he documented how important it was for uh, Reformed thinkers in the 17th and 18th century Uh, To mine, not just the Bible, but this is what's so amazing, Uh, subsequent Jewish tradition, including writers like Josephus, but Talmud, Maimonides, all the way up to, you know, medieval thinkers with respect to uh, what is the Christian position regarding religious freedom? Or what type of you know state mechanism uh is most appropriate for you know a Christian civilization, mm-hmm. and what he showed is that these thinkers were you know there's nothing there's nothing in the new testament there's there's not a lot in the New Testament about this, but there's ample material in the Old testament, and that's where they turned and the notions of a constitutional democracy uh religious freedom et cetera et cetera uh these um reform thinkers derived all of this. Uh, from the Old Testament, and mm. it had uh, its authoritative voice was uh, really extraordinary. Uh, how that gets lost in the 20th and 21st century, that's a curious thing. I mean, we move to different thinkers like Schleiermacher, we can see that change, um, but that's a curious matter. But, anyways, back to your mm. question where I really like Childs is that he sees we basically have two ends, a kind of continuum that is going to define a paradox. On the one hand, uh, the New Testament isn't simply an appendix or an, a last chapter in a scriptural story, but it's a real game changer. Uh, the illustration I use in my book is the way in which um, prophecies about the building of what we might call the Third Temple are mm-hmm. going to be drastically reread uh, in Byzantine Christianity. Early Christianity is speaking to uh, the incarnation of Christ. Um, so here we're taking, you know, uh, uh, an intentional document, let's say Ezekiel 40 to 48 and turning it on its head, uh, in light of the new event, the Christ event. Um, so that's one element for child it changes everything, you know, once we've got, you know, the incarnate son of God, uh, you know, in place. But, uh, the other side of the thing is that the child's all always wants to argue is that, um, for early Christian, you know, thinkers, uh, defining who Jesus was and developing his character uh, was uh, highly dependent on you know, showing how his character was in accord with um, the Old Testament. Some A favorite essay of mine that I often use in my teaching is by one of child students, Chris Seitz, in which he argues that the development in the early church of the notion of a first and second advent was driven in large part because the church realized that Jesus, you know, doesn't fulfill everything that the Old Testament prophesies about the coming of the Messiah. Um, the literal realization, for example, of what's promised in Isaiah nine and eleven uh, simply doesn't come about. The lion does not yet lie down with the lamb, um, and so as Sites, I, I think so helpfully illustrates, what we can see in early Christian exegesis. Uh, is um, a respect for what he calls the per se voice of Isaiah. It's not, they're trying to put a round peg in a square hole. No, the prophecies that Isaiah sees as defining the moment of the eschaton, the consummation of human history, mm-hmm. remain. that remains the final telos or aim for Christians as well. And we expect Jesus to come again Because those promises, you know, remain, um, uh, you know, they they remain the same promises for Jews as for Christians. So uh, Mm -hmm. that is a very good example of how the Old Testament, as it were, shapes uh, the way in which we understand the person of Jesus without, Mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, diminishing, we might want Mm -hmm. to say, his messiahship or divinity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
0: you do a great job, too, in the book. You you do this in a lot of your books with use of Christian art and synagogue art to make this point as well. So you use the example in the book of the prophet Ezekiel in the uh, Sistine Chapel, sharply turning his head uh, as if in shock in the ways uh, in, in the direction in which... Um, some of the prophecy is taken in in light of this radical newness. So the prophet retains his voice, but there is uh, a newness and a rereading, if you will, uh, that's taking place. Right.
1: Exactly. I think that that's very, very much a part of especially medieval and early modern Christian thinking of uh, the realization that, you know, in some senses, these Old Testament writers thought one thing. Uh, But the way in which um, Revelation unfurled uh, what they thought was uh, what something pointed to was transformed dramatically.
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: So um, you're arguing, right, you're
0: focused on the tabernacle narrative and you're arguing that really this story is fundamentally about, well, it's like the heart, right, of the Pentateuch. It's the heart of God's instruction for his people. And it's the story about the divine presence Um, and you've got some great stuff in there about seeing, seeing the divine presence. Uh, and then it's the place where God will be served by his people, the altar that's set up the tabernacle. Uh, so serving God. So how do these two, like, can you kind of summarize for the audience a little bit what you're doing with these two themes? Um, how the Pentateuch kind of is networked together to point us to the importance of presence and, um, and what it means what sacrifice is about in serving God, and you focus in particular on the the tamid sacrifice uh, the daily uh,
1: sacrifice upon which others are built so um, the tabernacle's you know narrative, as I try to explain in the book, and this is certainly not novel to me, has uh, two foci two. Tele, if we're going to use uh, the Greek words, that is two climaxes, which is somewhat surprising. You would think, you know, the building of the tabernacle, the appearance uh, of God would point to a single moment. But um, uh, there's a climax or a theophany, appearance of God, at the end of chapter 40, uh, when the tabernacle is constructed, and then in Leviticus 9, when the uh, altar is lit for the first time and sacrifices are offered, uh, God appears again. So we have these two uh, climaxes, as it were, to the narrative. How are we to relate them? Uh, here's where actually Jewish Jesus was um, a point of uh, uh, embarkation for me, because when you look at the Talmud and even many of the medieval Jewish thinkers, uh, they understand these two chapters, though they're separated, obviously, by a lot of space, uh, as occurring at one and the same time. Uh, That is, as God comes into the tabernacle at the same moment, he's uh, lighting the sacrificial pyre. Uh, There's a famous, you know, uh, dictum in in rabbinic exegesis about the Torah that there's no before or after. In other words, uh, the literary order of the text doesn't always reflect the chronological order. Mm. Um, And uh, I think that's nicely exemplified here. So my book begins by trying to explain textually why this unusual you know, Jewish interpretation develops. And I think the clue is in Exodus 40 itself, uh, which is a chapter that divides into two parts, um, a command section at the beginning of the chapter about how to assemble the tabernacle, and then the second part is Moses assembling the tabernacle. Uh, but um, so, the, I mean, at least that's the initial way to describe the chapter, but when you get into the details, it's actually a little bit more complex because in that command section, the first part of chapter 40, uh, we have commands about the anointing both of the tabernacle and of the priests, which points us forward to Leviticus 8 and 9. Uh, So the chapter is somewhat confusing in that it says that everything Moses did uh, was completed, but it's not completed within the frame of chapter 40. It's not going to be completed until Leviticus 9. So Mm -hmm. that, you know, kind of, peculiar textual detail is pulled out by rabbinic readers to make the argument that um, these two events happen at the same time. My own argument was a little bit more, we might want to say, apophatic to use a technical theological term meaning, uh, uh, in essence we can't really know. Uh, there's a kind of intentional confusion here I would want to suggest, uh, but a content- uh, intentional confusion with a specific theological purpose, and that is think the biblical writer wants us to see both of these thematic, um, uh, these theme posts, we might want to say, indwelling of the tabernacle and lighting of the sacrificial pyre as being, you know, equally weighted in terms of their significance and equally defining the purpose for building the tabernacle in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so I spend a lot of time on the former, as you mentioned, seeing God, because I think this Mm -hmm. is the piece that modern readers perhaps especially modern Christian readers, are, is going to be most foreign to them. Um, we think mm-hmm. of the tabernacle building as being there simply as an instrument for the altar and offering sacrifice. Uh, but in the Bible, the indwelling of this building is a kind of good in and of itself. And coming to the building, coming to the city of Jerusalem uh, to take in visually Mm -hmm. Uh, the building Um, Mm -hmm. and even the buildings around the building is uh, conceived to be, you know, a uh, extraordinary uh, spiritual act of obedience. Uh, It's modern counterpart would be, you know, modern Jews to this day who come to the Western wall in Jerusalem, uh, that the reason why the Western wall has that kind of significance is because of its association with the temple. We can no longer see the temple, but we can see, Uh, some of the stonework uh, that participated Mm -hmm. in the glory of God uh, that Mm -hmm. resided within the temple. And I think that um, that sort of religious practice is deeply biblical, and it's Mm -hmm. deeply part of the tabernacle narrative, and often, I think, ignored uh, by modern readers.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: that was a part that really, I
0: really latched on to in the book was thinking through the the sancta itself as being incarnational and that the kind of rationalist perspective to want to in a hard and fast way, separate the divine presence from the place where the divine presence is located. But you really problematize that. I think very helpfully as well as how that's going to play into, which we'll talk about the uh, discussions of Jesus's body later and, and, and things like of, of that nature. The other thing that,
1: um, I really yeah. Small foot to that, So I think the best place to see this illustrated if the listeners wanted to find, as it were, the kind yeah. of smoking gun uh, that would, you know, I think prove my point is to um, compare Exodus 40, the second half of that chapter, which is the instructions for how to assemble the tabernacle with numbers four, uh, which is the story of how the tabernacle is to be taken apart and prepared for. It's journey through the wilderness. So in chapter 40, there's no danger inherent of any of the parts. Moses or whoever is there uh, can look at them, assemble them. Uh, there's no problem. But when we get to Numbers 4, we can see that the pit landscape is completely different. Uh, mm-hmm. The extraordinary care in taking down the tabernacle and protecting especially the inner furniture from sight by the Levites and certainly uh, the uh, lay Israelites is extraordinary. How do we explain this? The only way to explain it, I think, is that once the glory of the Lord has entered into the building, everything within the building ontologically in terms of its being Mm -hmm. is transformed. Um, Mm -hmm. If you wanted to have a Christian uh, counterpart here, it would be certainly in a Roman Catholic context uh, the uh, consecration of the Eucharistic elements prior mm-hmm. to the Mass—the bread and the wine—you could take them home and eat them for dinner. And there's nothing special about them; they're mm-hmm. just, you know, tasteless wafers and probably, you know, cheap and expensive wine. But once they've been consecrated, of course. Uh, then, you know, there's all kinds, you know, extraordinary ontological change has occurred and you can, Catholics can adore them, uh, you know, in in terms of Eucharistic adoration, stare Mm -hmm. at them, as it were, uh, because they represent, you know, the presence of God. And I think um, Mm -hmm. within the Hebrew Bible, I mean, we don't have exactly that, obviously, uh, but we have an analogy to that. Uh, the tabernacle, uh, the building, its uh, all of its material materiality, utter materiality, is dramatically transformed. Uh, and then seeing the tabernacle is like seeing something of God's own person. I think that's that's basic to uh, this distinction of Numbers four and Exodus forty. No, that's really great. Thanks for that
0: example. Um, and and you'd also really helpfully pointed out in the book the tradition of the laity be when they're facing the altar, the curtain being pulled back so that when you're gazing into in that tradition, you're gazing into the Holy of Holies as it were, you are, you're seeing the furniture there, but you're seeing God like Mm -hmm. in, in the furniture. I think that was, that was also really, a really helpful illustration to me. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's really great. Um, could you speak a little bit about the, uh, the connection of the setting up of the, the tabernacle to the, as a completion of the work that began in creation? Um, so the, the idea that, that the formation of the tabernacle is kind of like the final work or the, the completion of what God began in uh, the acts of, opening acts of the Bible.
1: Right. So the place, I mean, here one is greatly aided if you know Hebrew, because, I mean, you can point it out in English, certainly, and I have a chart in the book which will illustrate. But if you look at Exodus 39 and 40, uh, the bringing of all the tabernacle pieces to Moses and then its assemblage uh, and completion, a lot of the phraseology there is repeating Verbatim phraseology from Genesis 1. This has long Mm -hmm. been known. Many, many scholars have pointed out these connections. It's certainly not novel to me. Um, We can also see this illustrated, and I do point this out at my first chapter of the book in John's Gospel, Mm -hmm. uh, where John 1 1 is, you know, in the beginning was the word, which is clearly, you know, a reformulation of Genesis 1 1. Uh, But John 1, it's telos, using the Greek word again, climax, Uh, Mm -hmm. what it's pointing toward is uh, chapter 1, verse 14, the word dwelt among us, that Mm -hmm. dwelling among us, as New Testament scholars have long noticed, skeno'o in Greek, is um, referring to the tabernacling presence of God. So according to John's Gospel, creation is ordered to the incarnation, which simply is, you know, a Christian variant on the role of the tabernacle in uh, the Pentateuch, that creating the world is an event that has as its ultimate, you know, goal God's taking up residence among the people, you know, He loves that notion of divine intimacy, relationship to God, service to God. Uh, this is what you know Scripture is about. This is what creation's about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and you point out in the book as well as John says uh, the when the when the the word becomes flesh and tabernacles among us we've seen we've seen his glory so there you have the divine glory and the sight of the glory which i thought was yeah spot on um And then in terms of sacrifice, we have all kinds of skewed ideas about what sacrifice is uh, in the Christian tradition, probably because we interpret it back through the lens of the cross. The cross was the sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross. Uh, That was for atonement, you know, all this kind of stuff. But what what's the heart of sacrifice as you understand it and you draw out in the in in the book?
1: So, I mean, you you illustrate, I think, nicely, one of the problems Christian readers have when they come to the tabernacle narrative is that, We associate, because of the cross, because of the atoning work of Christ, uh, we associate sacrifice so strongly with atonement, we don't understand that there are other, you know, goods uh, that sacrifice, Mm -hmm. you know, is ordered to. Also problematic frequently for Christian readers of the tabernacle narrative is that the sacrifice uh, towards which you know the tabernacle is pointing us is not an atonement sacrifice. We have those certainly in the Hebrew Bible and Leviticus, uh, but its goal is not that. Its goal is, as you mentioned, the tamid, the daily morning and evening sacrifice, which has nothing to do uh, with uh, atonement. Um, And now we're, so the next question is, well then, what is its purpose? And now we're somewhat at loggerheads because one of the striking things about the tabernacle narrative is that it tells us how to prepare uh, the tamid sacrifice. It's very interested that it, you know, the kind of cooking directions for preparing it, but it doesn't tell us, you know, for what meal or how we're supposed to serve this, what the purpose is. Um, And so, uh, we are you know kind of guessing here when we're when we attempt to fill out um, mm-hmm. what the purpose of the sacrifice uh, tamid sacrifice is. I try to suggest i mean there's I have a long discussion here i don 't want to take the whole podcast uh, um, articulating my argument here, uh, but at the end of the day, I think um, certainly in Jewish exegesis and ultimately also in Christian exegesis. Uh, The Tamid sacrifice is tied back to uh, the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis Mm -hmm. 22. Um, And so what is the reason for that? It's not certainly here I'm a good critical biblical scholar. I don't think that, you know, the author of Genesis 22 uh, knew uh, the tabernacle narrative, nor the reverse do I think that the author of the tabernacle narrative knew uh, Genesis 22, but here... I think Brever Childs is very, you know, important and uh, constructive, is that in the final canonical shape of the Bible, whatever the original historical authors were, and let's be honest, we're just guessing here, uh, Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, something that the Bible itself presents to the reader as, you know, an authoritative, you know, datum, Uh, it's something as modern historians we've come to see. Um, but uh, we do have to take the final shape seriously. And Genesis mm-hmm. 22 presents itself as a kind of etiology of uh, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it's where, uh, you know, it takes place where Jerusalem will be will be built. And so the sacrifice that takes place there, uh, that is Abraham and Isaac, the near sacrifice, we might want to say. Um, it's logical to relate it uh, to um, the sacrificial, you know, um, practice that will define, you know, Jerusalem, the sacrificial practice that will be defined by the Tamid. Um, And if we allow then Genesis 22 to function this way, canonically, I would say, uh, then sacrifice in this mode of thinking is that of offering one's whole self. Mm -hmm. Either Abraham offering his, you know, only remaining son, um, upon whom the entire promise that God has made uh, depends a kind of stupendous sacrifice, an unimaginable sacrifice. Or if we take it from you know Isaac's own perspective, offering his life uh, back uh, to God. Uh, so the Tamid sacrifice, uh, ultimately in Jewish exegesis, was understood to be patterned on that primal sacrifice. In that when one offered the sacrifice morning and evening, one recalled that primal sacrifice. Um, well, if we take that you know notion you know seriously, of course, I mean it's it's a beautiful Jewish expression and works beautifully just mm-hmm. on its own. We don't have to yes. have the Christian story somehow to make sense of it. It's beautiful on its own, uh, but it's a paradigm into which you know Christ's own sacrifice fits mm-hmm. you know beautifully. So um, mm-hmm. the story of the binding of Isaac, near sacrifice of Isaac, was always understood by Christian interpreters as, you know, a typological pointer uh, yeah. to Christ's sacrifice. I mentioned in the very last footnote of the book, I wish I had included this image, but it was an image I discovered at the end of my, you know, research on all of this in the gallery of art in London of, uh, you know, it was the incident in, in Luke of presenting Christ at the temple. Um, uh, his mother presenting him and uh the priest who receives the child is standing behind an altarpiece that looks like a you know catholic altarpiece from uh the high middle ages but rather than having the crucifix in the middle which of course wouldn't fit he hasn't died yet uh we have the sacrifice a, uh, of Isaac uh mm. so for this artist that's the typological pointer that's the model uh, that uh, Christ will assume in his old his own sacrifice. It's modeled on, you know, an Old Testament, you know, saint, venerable figure, and um, so I, I think that you know, at least for me, um, ultimately, that's what I want to suggest would be a canonical reading mm-hmm. of how the meat sacrifice is to be viewed in the Book of Exodus.
0: Yeah. That's, that's really great stuff. And, um, as you get into it too, the the logic of the, the giving, um, it, it really is, it, it, it's a circular kind of rationale that God gives the gift, gives life and the giver, uh, or we, when we give back to God are responding to that gift and offering a piece of ourselves uh, through sacrifice, or as it were, perhaps our whole selves. Um, it strikes me that that Philo really likes likes the idea of the whole burnt offering because for him it's an image of the total devotion of the self to God. And I also think about uh, St. Paul in Romans 12 when he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That um, I, I guess I kind of wonder with sacrifice sometimes we focus on the giving of the self as being like the event of death, but I almost wonder if the giving of the self is more, The complete devotion of the self to God, um,
1: if that's if that's the emphasis of
0: what sacrifice is. Right.
1: I think that's that's a very good way of putting it. And if we went back just to two previous books of my own, I think it's the reason why my book on charity, uh, Mm. we see both in the synagogue and the church. Uh, the notion of uh, giving to the poor, giving alms to the poor, as analogous to temple sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, most people, if you look at most handbooks, they say, "Well, you know, this develops in the synagogue because the temple's destroyed. We need have to have something to replace it," um, which in part is true. But this idea is already found in the Book of Tobit and in the Book yeah. of Ben Sirah, when there mm-hmm. is a temple. So uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to have the temple gone for it to have the kind of gravity it has. So within mm-hmm. the early church, it's one of the reasons why um, charity towards the poor developed the kind of significance and power it had mm-hmm. because it was a sacrificial action. You, Not everyone could be a martyr, but everyone could part with a significant portion of mm-hmm. their material resources.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Um... <clears throat> so I'd love to hear your thinking about um, the uh, the Christological implications of the incarnate Word, like uh, being pictured as a temple. We've already gestured towards it in John, but you get into you you introduce the book with it, but then you come back to um, incarnation again, and you get into a discussion of a little bit of like the Christological debates about it, you know the connection of the flesh. Of Jesus to the Logos, and and how we, how those two are intertwined, and then how they get separated or parsed, and then uh, thinking also of Mary's body as a temple. I'd love to hear your thinking, uh, just kind of a little bit about what you do there.
1: So, very early on, I mean, obviously in the Gospel of John already, where you know many scholars have noticed this, Jesus is kind of a walking temple, you know, within the Gospel we can see that the way in which that gospel writer is understanding his divinity is deeply informed by uh, a temple theology. And this continues to grow within the early church. One of the texts that I use to articulate this in my book is from Athanasius near the end of his career, uh, where the question of the relationship with Arius, but maybe especially with um, the Nestorians that follow. Nestorius is a little bit later than Athanasius, but his ideas are already, you know, circulating um, uh, at, at the end of Athanasius' day. Is uh, what is the relationship of the Godhead uh to the body of Christ? Is Christ simply a kind of episodic site where theophanies of uh the reality of God appear? Uh he's not necessarily integrally related to them, but he happens to be the kind of privileged figure in which these theophanies take place. Or is there something about his person, uh, that, you know, conveys this divine sense and, uh, Athanasius in order to, you know, kind of, you know, this goes back to your initial question, actually, what is the value of the old Testament in Christian theological discourse? He can't, you know, uh, solve this problem with his theological interlocutors from the New Testament alone. He has to go back to Hmm. the tabernacle temple model to make his point. And what he says is we look at the Old Testament and we have this command to Uh, visit and venerate God, Uh, well, the people of Galilee could have just did this in their own home, you know, light a candle, say a prayer, and, you know, God just appears there and they fulfill their obligation. Athanasius says, no, there's some kind of presence assumed in the temple that's special, that requires the Israelites to go down there, and if they don't, they'll be in violation of religious law. Um, and he says, you know, mutatus, mutandis. I mean, similarly for Christ's person, the relationship. So the relationship of God to the stones in the temple is directly analogous to the relationship to God, to the flesh and bones of the person. Jesus, there's a kind of durative quality through time of uh, God and his person. And um, Athanasius makes that point by turning to the temple, a very important, a very child's move, we might want to say. Yeah, that's really
0: interesting. Yeah, and then, of course, we also, particularly in, uh, like, the Gospel of Luke, the language of the glory overshadowing Mary. And so we have Mary, the the mother of God, also, then she comes to be seen uh, as a temple as well. Um, can you give us a little bit about what you do with, with her? Uh, particularly, also, I'm really interested in um, the logic of why ongoing veneration of Mary is theologically important because you know her body was and is still, in some sense, a, 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 a has that that bears the quality of being the temple of God,
1: right? So, I think this is this is again, I think where the Old Testament does a lot of work and maybe not fully appreciated, especially by you know Protestant um mm-hmm. readers who would be you know, suspicious, maybe even in a friendly way, suspicious about the veneration of Mary because it doesn't seem to have a New Testament basis. Um, I wouldn't dispute that. There, you know, New Testament texts about Mary certainly are uh, not numerous and they don't go into a lot of detail about a person. But what happens in the early church is they say, well, it's the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the new. And if material space is forever transformed when God enters it, as happens with the tabernacle, then wouldn't we presume that the same thing would be true when God enters the womb uh, of the Blessed Virgin? Hmm. And all all of this, you know, with respect to the laws of purity that pertain to the temple, then those also are understood to be applicable to Mary. Um, But the key thing here, (laughs) so uh, certainly you'll find many Protestant polemicists who will say, you know, Catholics are, you know, Worshipping Mary, and maybe some do. I don't know. I'm, a, a, <laughs> I'm sure that criticisms uh, aren't always completely inaccurate. But in terms of its historical origin, the reason why Mary is venerated is because of the person she holds in her womb. Right? That has. That's what mm-hmm. has to be borne in mind. So that the veneration of Mary is really just an affirmation of the fact of the Godhead. Uh, you know, she held uh, in her own person, just as the you know, veneration of the Western Wall isn't simply because those stones are so fantastic. That's not why Jews venerate the Western Wall. They venerate the wall because of its association with the temple and the temple in which God dwelt. Um, mm-hmm. And that's was always the point about Mary is that Mary was an indication of a high Christology. The mm-hmm. higher your Christology, uh, the more in awe you were uh, that Mary could, you know, hold God and not be incinerated. One of my favorite texts mm. uh, from the Church Fathers, these are Greek Fathers, is they always saw the burning bush as a uh, analogy to Mary. Why did they say oh, that? Yeah. You know, how, who what, who, what human being? Certainly not me. How could hold God, you know, mm. within their womb, within their bowels for nine months and not be destroyed? Mm. Uh, who's that pure who uh that's just impossible um and uh so the the articulation of the sanctity of her character again it's not about mary that's mm-hmm. the important thing but it's a reflection on the god that she houses that's mm-hmm. that's the key thing and this develops very you know early in christian thinking and um uh the development of mary's character is almost completely you know, Old Testament in um, its origin.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. Thanks for thanks for that. I think a lot of Protestants are unaware of the history there, and it's helpful to just have it laid out and to see that it is a it, whether one accepts it or not, it's an act of uh, kind of biblical theology from the Old Testament that's being brought to bear on the significance of the Christ event. So that's that's really really helpful. Um you don't deal with this in the book, but because I have you here, I'd love to just hear your thinking on it for a moment. When we're thinking about temple and temple uh as place, what do you do with the uh the celestial temple that um we have images of in like Jewish apocalyptic and Jesus uh like in Hebrews, Jesus entering into that space. Um how how does that factor into your theology and thinking about the ways in which like uh, Christians might even think about sacrifice
1: today? So I think that the reason why you have that notion develop in the Bible, of course, it perhaps goes back to the tabernacle narrative itself, where Moses you know sees it's not clear what tavnit exactly means in that text that is. <laughs> Model or whatever what Moses sees a model in heaven and many people have interpreted that as the heavenly temple and then builds the temple below uh, to match as closely as he can um, It's uh, its blueprint. I think I mean if you're looking at this functionally, I think the 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 work as it were the notion of heavenly temple does is to dignify uh, the significance and importance of the earthly temple, in other words, um, historians of religion would refer to the temple as being a kind of an axis mundi as though mm-hmm. uh, the, a point at which you know heaven and earth you know bisect one another, so that what happens in the earthly temple is directly reflective of the divine life above it 's not just some kind of accidental building let 's say we could pray anywhere let 's just tick pick this room and pray there. Um, mm-hmm. That would be, it would be hard to associate that with, you know, uh, a heavenly, you know, room that was, you know, uh, you know, somehow modeled on it. You'd have to have a zillion of them. The image would just fall apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you have, you know, a, especially a single place like you do in the city of Jerusalem, uh, you dignify its significance, it seems to me, by, you know, uh, articulating its ontological status in light of the mm-hmm. heavenly, you know, building. Uh, it reflects. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: No, that, that makes sense. Uh, That, that totally makes sense.
0: I I was kind of trying to think through like um, how sacrifice could be correlated to that as well. Um, Origin is one is one thinker that I've been drawn to a lot in particular, his homilies on Leviticus. And he also has a little bit in his commentary on uh, Romans, the parts that have been preserved. But when he's thinking about the, the sacrifice of Jesus He's seeing a link between the earthly altar, as it were, and the heavenly altar. Um, and I think he he's trying to coordinate then what we have in Hebrews, which seems to me Jesus offering himself in heaven as well. Um, as a like, like as, as a sacrifice taking place there or an offering um, priest, right. priest okay. and sacrifice going into the Holy of Holies.
1: Right, and so that 's a great image, because there we can see within the Christian tradition um, within its own you know internal framework, why um, the atonement dimension of sacrifice, though obviously important, can 't be the sum total of what constitutes sacrifice because. Uh, Once we have this notion of a heavenly tabernacle and the relationship of the divine son to his father is going to be construed as sacrificial in character, then that's an eternal aspect Mm -hmm. of the relationship of the son to the father that precedes, you know, human life, the creation of this world. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so there must be a good, we would say, associated with that sacrificial action Mm -hmm. that has Mm -hmm. value. Independent of uh, human sin that follows, and that's mm-hmm. that, that that's the dimension I really try to pick mm-hmm. up in the last chapter of the book is that we're not we're not ruling out I'm not saying atonement isn't there, but atonement is a kind of second order good in sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the first order good is that of you know the Romans twelve picture of, mm-hmm. or I would say the Philippians two picture. Of offering one's total self to God and that act of devotion, that act of love, as it were, uh, becomes the modality or the mechanism through which then Mm. atonement will work. Uh, But Mm -hmm. we don't have to have a situation requiring atonement uh, for that sacrifice to be, you know, venerable um, and uh, part of the Godhead.
0: Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful. And and so the idea is sacrifice
0: is primary it's a way of relating to one another in, in self-giving. And one could even argue that if you take the need for atonement out of that, that would still be the way of, of relating. So that the I mean, if we we're extrapolating the 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 manner in which a human would relate to the creator in the eschaton would be in that perfect act of giving towards, towards the creator, like, uh, that, yeah, that would, think, that would mark one's way of living unto onto eternity.
1: Right. So if I could give maybe a, an analogy in the Hebrew Bible here, it wouldn't be exact, but I think it would be similar. I didn't use this in my book, maybe in a forthcoming book I'm, that I'm planning on writing. Uh, it would be, um, David's actions when he's, uh, evicted from the city of Jerusalem near the end of second Samuel, uh, he's suffering the punishments that Nathan says uh will come upon him as the result of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah her husband, so he's making atonement for what he did wrong uh by suffering these punishments uh, That's a super important part of the narrative. but as he leaves Jerusalem, Zadok the high priest brings out the you know, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, so that it can accompany David and presumably offer him a better chance of returning to the city in glory. And David looks at the at Zadok and says, No, take the Ark back into Jerusalem. Um, you know, if God wants me to rule again in Jerusalem, He'll bring me back. Um, mm-hmm. But what's happening there? So it is it is atoning. There's no question there. He's atoning for his sin. He's putting God in first place rather than himself. Uh, but the mod- modality here is that of putting his whole life at the disposal of the God he serves. I mean, that's something he should do regardless of the sin, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But uh, in the context of the sin, of course, it's the quintessential atoning act. But it's mm-hmm. an act that has a goodness to it uh, and a value to it that, you know, mm-hmm. he could you know <laughs> exemplify independent of the atoning sequence. Yeah. And I, it's that kind of paradox I think we need to um, utilize when we look at Christ's sacrifice. Yes, the atoning act is central. He saves us from our sins. I'm not denying that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, the modality of this total gift, uh, the Romans 12 aspect, you know has a validity a internal goodness to it that doesn't require human sin mm-hmm. uh if you see what I'm saying yeah, I
0: do absolutely uh and another way of maybe getting at it would just be to say that uh incarnation was always plan a it wasn't uh it wasn't a plan b to fix the problems, and that was God's design always to jo- be joined with humanity, yeah, absolutely um Another kind of slightly off-the-wall question, but I'd love to just kind of hear your thinking. If if we're thinking of Christ's body as temple um, in the Gospels, and we're relating the ways in which sin and impurity um, impact the sancta, like Allah Jacob Milgram, so that uh, the temple is this super like holy force, and paradoxically, it attracts um, the sin and impurity of the people and therefore has to be prepared and, 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 and cleansed. Is there any way, like, is that, would that be too crazy to connect that line of thinking to Jesus's body in the gospels? I'm just thinking about how much he in, encounters ritual impurity. And there's several ways that gospel scholars go with it. One is that Jesus just didn't care about ritual impurity, uh, or, or the evangelists didn't, which I don't think is correct. Um, there's something, another way to say something about the incredible holiness in, in him that overwhelms, uh, various forms of ritual impurity. Um, I think Matthew Thieson ties them all in as Milgram does to kind of like having to pertain to mortality in some sense or whatever. Ooh. Um, but I, I guess my extension of that, what I'm, what I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, and it, it may, admittedly, it may be a little bit, like wacky, but is there a sense in which Christ's body in those scenes is bearing the the consequences of being human, being with humanity, and that in some cases, in some sense, his resurrection, uh, his death and then resurrection serves in some form as a kind of purification, if you will, of the body. I know that sounds maybe crazy, but I'm just wondering about that incarnational aspect of we think about God incarnate being with us, bearing our sins. But I wonder if there's actually a tangible consequence of him bearing sin and impurity. So,
1: I you know, I guess I would say a couple of things. I haven't, first of all, given this a tremendous amount of thought. So. Okay. I'm um, hesitant to speak to authoritatively here. I'm also, I mean, Jesus is, as it were, a walking temple, um, but uh, we have to be, you know, careful uh, in terms of how, you know, uh, what lines connect and what lines don't connect. So it sure. doesn't everything about the temple, you know, instantly, tra- you know, is correlated to Jesus' person. But now, having said that, there are two ways, though. Certainly, we th- when we think of early Christian practice. Uh, that um, the concerns that you just uh, articulated are certainly followed up upon. One would be uh, the habit that early Christians had, I don't know how early this is, but it's very, very early, of interring the body of saints Within altars, uh, within churches, which of course, according to Old Testament law, would be strictly forbidden. You know, so mm-hmm. where does this come from? Um, here, I think, again, again, I speak with you know a little bit of hesitation because it's not my domain. Uh, anyone who's listening to me should check the details further before presuming I'm correct. But uh as i understand it um the reason why christians will inter the bodies of martyrs within churches is not because numbers 19 is no longer valid rather uh those bodies were understood to be participating in the resurrected body uh mm. so they weren't subject to uh the laws of impurity uh as defined by you know levitical law so in a way they were actually upholding the, the validity Uh, of Mm -hmm. those laws by putting the character of the martyr's body in a kind of frame uh, different from that of ordinary human bodies. Then also, I mean, the reason why we have, you know, what develops in the East, uh, the iconostasis, that is the chancel screen that will divide the laity from the altar, all of this, you know, has to do with the purity laws of the Old Testament. It's simply taking the physical structure of the tabernacle temple uh Mm -hmm. and making it the blueprint for the christian church and then viewing uh eucharistic you know vessels for example handling them all of this was treated very early within you know uh, christian canon law on the basis of uh, these levitical models again the presumption being here that the god of the old testament is the same as the god of the new and if you have you know sancta you know within the domain of the church it's going to follow the rubrics articulated in the old Mm -hmm. um uh, so in that sense you know the kind of purity legislation um continues and in fact in the early eastern church too leviticus 12 this is partly marian uh uh, the restriction of the woman who's recently delivered from coming to the temple applies Mm -hmm. to coming to the mass um there, uh it's no longer practice, but there was a a, a ritual of the churching of women in which uh, they would not return to mass for a while after they had born their child in imitation of what Mary does in Luke's gospel. It goes back to, of course, Leviticus 12 in the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. Thanks. I appreciate you indulging me. I know that was an off the wall question and uh, it's just something I don't know. I've been kind of chewing on. Um, last, last question I'd love to hear your thoughts on. So you, you emphasize that thinking about Jesus as atonement in an old Testament sacrificial model really helps us get away, uh, or, or develop a kind of a non-putative modality of thinking about the atonement. Um, it's very common to, for people to think that Jesus was punished by God, uh, declared guilty, um, you know, uh. A kind of a penal substitutionary model. Um, but, uh, I, I agree with you. I think the more you think through sacrifice, the harder it is to imagine that if there, if there is a penal substitution, it's not coming from sacrifice. <laughs> uh, it's coming from something else, but, um, but yeah, could you just unpack your thinking
1: on that a little bit for us? I mean, you're speaking as a kind of systematic theologian. I think, um, there's a great book by a famous um, Swiss Jesuit from the 20th century, uh, von Balthasar, titled Only Love is Credible. Um, And I think if you're thinking, you know, apologetically in terms of the projection of the Christian message into the world, uh, you want to ground um, the atoning act, the saving act of Christ in love, in an act of love. Uh, and um, that has to come primary. Now, it has to be an act of love that somehow is dealing with the consequences of human sin, uh, to be sure. Um, but I think the kind of uh, we might, I would say, crude picture of, um, you know, uh, punitive atonement uh, generates a God that most people, you know, would not want to mm-hmm. want to worship so, the question then becomes in terms of how we read the Gospels, how we expound the Gospels: how can we do justice to uh the Son of God who offered his life on our behalf uh we who are you know sinners without you know uh without aid, um, but how can we tell that story in a way that puts the love of God uh front and center um mm-hmm. And uh, I guess that's what I tried to suggest, you know, within my book goes back to the story of um, uh, the binding of Isaac, which is, you know, utilized significantly by Moses in his prayer of intercession, you know, for the people of Israel in Exodus 32, Um, the notion of uh, a a devotion of that nature, a revelation of an individual's, you know, total consuming love of God uh, is so extraordinary. Uh, that it can cover over, as it were, pay for uh, the debt of our sins. I think uh, that's, the, that's the kind of story I would want to tell about um, how it is that you know, our sins are dealt with uh, by God and you know, why you know, a, a sacrificial death of this sort was necessary. We'll go back to my story about David. I mean, David's crime was a serious crime. And being, you know, thrown out of his, you know, capital city was an appropriate punishment. But the way the Bible tells that story is it's not God just settling a score here, right? Um, Which we sometimes have in these kind of punitive, you know, uh, penal atonement, you know, narratives. Um, It's, you know, making David, you know, a suitable vessel uh, Mm. for, you know, God's, you know, continuing work with him as king over Judah and Israel, uh, and to be a suitable vessel, he has to be an individual who recognizes that, you know, he's in second place; God's in first place. So that action is quintessentially atoning; it's punitive, uh, yes, but the punitive element is, I think, runs side saddle, as it were, uh, mm. to the more formative, you know, devotion side. Um mm-hmm. his Christian language he's he's um he's it, it's an act of divinization. He's uh being incorporated into the kind of pattern of life that we see in Philippians two, uh that the Son of God realizes in his own person. And it's a pattern of life uh that's valuable and imitatable, you know, uh prior to sin and after sin. Yeah. Oh, that's really helpful thanks so much um
0: really appreciate your work on this book um i'm I'm going to come back to it more and more i'm I am myself trying to wrestle through uh, some kind of project on sacrifice in the New Testament and this has given me a lot to think about personally so uh thanks for your work i I highly recommend everybody this is a really really excellent book so you definitely want to check it out um thanks Gary I really appreciate your appreciate your time appreciate your scholarship.
1: Thank you so much for thinking of me and inviting me onto this podcast.
0: Yeah. You've just finished another episode of On The Way. Thanks so much for listening to us. We so appreciate it. If you haven't already, make sure that you are following or subscribed to the podcast so that you get the release of each new episode. And we'd very much appreciate if you would write us or rate us on whichever podcast platform you use. That would be awesome. The biggest encouragement I have is for you to consider joining our Facebook group if you haven't already. Link is posted in the episode description. This is a community for all people to just come together, encourage one another in our faith, share resources, and continue on this journey together. Thanks all. We love you.